We're going to look at chapter 10 of the gospel according to John. And because I'm going to read almost the entire book, or entire chapter, (laughs) I did not make sermon slides. So if you could take this moment to open your Bibles to chapter 10 of John, or open your bulletin to that page, it's on the front and back of one of the pages in your bulletin, or just listen to it read to you, because the gospel writers, as all the writers of the books of the Bible, wrote so that they could be read orally to the people, and so that the people could hear God's word long before they could read it, as well as wrote them to be put as words on a page or today on a screen. We're going to ask three questions of chapter 10 this morning. We're going to ask, who is Jesus? What is he like? And why did he come? Chapter 10 follows chapter 9, where Jesus has just performed my favorite miracle, where he heals a man who had been born blind, where he makes the mud and puts the mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he comes back able to see. So the people in the immediate area are starting to make assumptions about who Jesus is based upon not only what he's saying, but what he is doing. He is doing miracles that only God can do. Only the God of creation who created eyes can recreate eyes for a man who was born blind. But the Pharisees aren't buying it. They are the religious authorities in in Israel, and they're getting fed up with this previously unknown teacher who has popped onto the scene and is suddenly threatening their power over the people as the people are starting to turn and follow what he says rather than but rather than what they have been telling him to do. So at the end of chapter 9, the Pharisees challenge Jesus. They want him to clearly say whether he's making a claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God whom the Old Testament scriptures prophesied would come to deliver God's people. They're not asking him out out of a sincere heart. They're not asking him because they want to worship him if he says he is. They're asking him because they want evidence that they can use against him to have him killed for blasphemy. So Jesus begins chapter 10 by telling the Pharisees who he is and why he's come. So hear the words of our Savior as he begins chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand 
what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Here is the reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you came into this world so that your sheep could hear your voice. We pray that you would speak to us today. Tell us who you are. Tell us what you're like. And tell us why you came. We look to you and we await your word speaking to us. 
Apply it to our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. The Gospels are filled with episodes of people asking Jesus who he is. Jesus even asked the question of the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16, asking Peter, who do you say that I am? In many of these episodes, the Gospel writers record Jesus answering this question, oftentimes indirectly, but on some occasions, he answers their questions directly as we see in our text this morning. Have you ever struggled with this question or had this question in your own mind? Who is Jesus? Perhaps you've grown up outside the church and wondered that question. Or perhaps you've grown up inside the church and you were a young person who grew up with parents telling you about Jesus and Sunday school teachers telling you about Jesus. But it is only recently that you are starting to ask this question yourself of yourself. Here in this morning's passage, we see the religious authorities ask this question. And Jesus begins his answer by saying that he is the good shepherd. That shepherd of Psalm 23, that great Psalm of David. They suspect that he is claiming to be David's Lord, David's shepherd. But they want a clearer answer. So in verse 24 of this morning's text, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. At which point Jesus essentially says to them, I've been telling you all along that I came to do the works of my father. But then, in verse 30, Jesus does make it crystal clear to them, where he says, I and the Father are one. And with that statement, they understood Jesus to say that he was God, that he was one with God, not just one in his will, not just one in his function, but one in his essence. This is the claim to be God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, which includes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This has been the central claim of Christianity for 2,000 years that we confessed this morning in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. I have a friend named Jagar Chinavan. He was born to a Hindu family overseas, a family from India. He heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as an adult and became a follower of Jesus. And he came to the United States, he came to South Carolina, in fact, to go to seminary. And he's now planting a church in Northern Virginia, in Fairfax County, trying to reach Tamil-speaking Indians in America with the gospel. Jagar was working on a sermon recently in a local library because that's where church planners do their work and their sermons, in libraries, in coffee shops, wherever we can get free (laughs) Wi-Fi. And a man who was a devout Muslim saw Jagar with his Bible and struck up a conversation with him. The man tried to challenge Jagar 
about who Jesus was. And he said, why do you worship Jesus as God? Jesus never said, I am God, you should worship me. And he probably said that because that's what the Quran had taught him. Jagar responded to the man by taking him to this morning's text that we read among many others. And he said to the man, Jesus may not have formulated the words that you would have had him say, but here in John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. And the religious authorities clearly understood what he was saying by their reaction. They wanted to kill him. This claim of Christ is what makes Christianity incompatible with all the other religions in the world, as well as the recent perspectives of postmodern as well as postmodern world. Men like Thomas Jefferson, who accepted Jesus as a great teacher, but dismissed his claims to be God. C.S. Lewis, famously a 20th century professor at Oxford and then Cambridge, who was once an atheist and then became a Christian, C.S. Lewis has famously responded to that argument with his, what has become known as, as his trilemma. And C.S. Lewis has written in Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then Lewis gives his perspective. He says, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus not only made this claim about himself, but his apostles did as well. In Colossians 1, Paul said that Jesus Christ was the visible image of the invisible God. Later in Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or another translation is held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of man. Paul is describing the fact that God the Son was equal with God the Father, but he temporarily gave up that glory, humbling himself to become a man. The creator entered into his creation, 
and made himself lower than the Father for a time. Being raised in our egalitarian culture, I'm often tempted to conceive of Christ or think of Christ in his human terms. And I neglect to think of him in his exalted terms. He is both. Which leads us to our second question. Okay, if Jesus is a God, what kind of God is he like? Because left undefined, I can imagine a God being many things. I can imagine him being a fickle, selfish God, like Zeus of Greek mythology or of the Percy Jackson mythologies. Gods, many gods, who act pretty much like people do, acting out of their own self-interests. Well, here in chapter 10, Jesus tells us what kind of God he wants to be for us and that he is for us. And he gives us the image of the shepherd to explain it to us. He's a shepherd who watches over his sheep, who leads and provides for his sheep, and who sacrifices himself for a sheep, his sheep. Jesus is using an image that his audience was very familiar with. Pastor and theologian Richard Phillips has written, the country of Judea was not well suited for agriculture, but it was ideal for pasturing livestock. So that inevitably the Jewish way of life would depend on shepherds. It seems therefore to be God's intention that the imagery of the shepherd should take hold in the Jewish imagination. Sir George Adam Smith of Scotland visited Israel at the end of the 19th century when it was still called Palestine. And afterwards, he wrote several books on its topography and its geography. And in one of his books, he wrote about the shepherds. He wrote, On some high moor, across which at night the hyenas howl, when you meet him, sleepless, farsighted, weather-beaten, leaning on his staff and looking out over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart, you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of the people's history, why they gave his name to their king and made him their symbol of providence, why Christ took him as the type of self-sacrifice. Many of the men in the Old Testament that God chose to lead his people had been shepherds first. Moses, before the Exodus, tended the flocks of his father-in-law, Laban. And before he was anointed king of Israel, David, as we've mentioned, had been a shepherd boy who once said to Saul in 1 Samuel 17, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. So clearly being a shepherd in Judea was a dangerous occupation, a dangerous job. Being a shepherd was a picture of self-sacrifice to the people. 
And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to his audience, and the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us through the text this morning, that this is the type of God, God the Son, that Jesus is, and he invites us to accept him as. Let's look at the verses on being a shepherd. First, in verses 1 through 6, Jesus tells us that the good shepherd knows his sheep and he leads them. John 10, 2 through 5 says, But he enters by the door, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of his sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. There were two types of pens, sheep, or corrals for sheep in Israel and Palestine. Those that were used in the country and those that were used in the city. When the shepherd was going into the city, he would lead his flock into a communal pen where there would be other flocks of sheep. They would go into the pen, the shepherd would conduct his business, and then when he came back to the pen, the gatekeeper would open the gate for the shepherd. The shepherd would then call his sheep, and his sheep would respond to his voice. Theologian Kent Hughes says that for the uninitiated like you and me, this would look like chaos. We would wonder, how in the world is this ever going to turn out right? But studies show, confirm the experience of shepherds that the shepherd calls his sheep and only his sheep will respond to his voice. Studies have been done where shepherds would exchange clothing. They would then go to the pen looking like another shepherd, even smelling like another shepherd, engaging all the other scents, but the sheep would not follow. It wasn't until the shepherd called to them with his voice, sang the songs he would sing to them or the ditties that he would say to them, Then they would respond, no matter what he was wearing or what he smelled like, they would follow their shepherd. The shepherd would call his sheep out of the pen and they would follow him. And he's not going to accidentally leave any of his sheep in the pen because he knows who his sheep are. The shepherds often name their sheep and know them by their description as well as their name. And so it is with Jesus and his people. He knows his people, he loves his people, and he calls them to come out of the world and follow him. Later in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says he knows his sheep as well as he knows his father. Jesus knows how imperfect Porter Harlow is, and yet he loves me and calls me to follow him. He knew Peter was an impulsive hothead who was going to draw a sword to defend him one minute and then run away and deny him three times a few moments later out of fear of even being identified with Jesus. But Jesus loved Peter, and he called him again and again and again to follow him not because of Peter's merit, not because of any good deeds Peter had done, but because he loved Peter. 
Peter was one of his sheep. Do you want to know what kind of God Jesus is? He's a highly personal God that knows us better than we know ourselves. I can't hide my sinful thoughts from Jesus, let alone my sinful actions. And yet, he still loves me and calls me. Again and again, he calls me to turn from my sin and to follow him. Have you heard him calling you? In verses 7 through 10, the good shepherd guards his sheep and provides good pasture for them. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I said there are two types of pens. The other type of pen is the one that would be in the country when the shepherd was taking his sheep to the pasture. These pens were usually rudimentary pens, maybe rocks piled on top of each other with no working gate. Sir George Adam Smith, again, during his travels during the 19th century, spoke with a shepherd and was recorded later as having had this conversation. Sir George was traveling with a guide and came across a shepherd and his sheep. He fell into a conversation with the man. The man showed him the fold into which the sheep were led at night and consisted of four walls with a way in. Sir George said to him, that is where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd, and when they are in, they are perfectly safe. But there is no door, said George. I am the door, said the shepherd. He was not a Christian man. He was not speaking in the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the Arab shepherd's standpoint. Sir George looked at him and said, what do you mean you are the door? Said the shepherd, when the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie in the open space and no sheep has ever gone across my body and no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. When you realize how vulnerable that sheep are to predators when they're in the countryside, you see the need for a good shepherd to protect them while they're eating and while they're sleeping. And here it's a good point, it's a good place to just consider how defenseless sheep really are. They have no defenses against predators. They can only flee and run away. They're completely dependent upon the strength of the shepherd to defend them. And so are people against evil and against temptation. Vulnerable and only able to flee. And we need a shepherd who will fight for us. Sheep also don't know how to find good pasture. Kent Hughes has written, as creatures of habit, they will follow paths through desolate places. Even though not far away is excellent forage, sheep are also given to listless wandering. Oh, how I know what he means by that. We need a shepherd who will lead us into the abundant pasture. And he promises to do that in verse 10. 
And isn't that the promise of verse of Psalm 23 in its whole, where David, the shepherd king of Israel, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And what does he do there? He restores my soul. Jesus wants to feed us in the good pasture. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He does that during this life by feeding us with his word in the Bible. And through the sacraments, when we see them, when we take them into our bodies and are reminded of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, he promises to lead us through this life and into the next. And when we follow Jesus, we are in a relationship with him. And relationships take communication. If my wife and I never spoke to each other, you would say there's something broken about our relationship, that our marriage might even be a legal fiction. Marriage takes communication. It includes encouragement. That includes gentle, loving correction when it's necessary. And so it is with our shepherd when he speaks to us in his word and when we speak to him in our prayers. These are not metaphors, but these are the actual means by which Jesus strengthens his people, nourishes our faith, and builds us up to do the good works that he's laid out for us to do. And when I neglect his word, when I neglect speaking to him in prayer, I have wandered from the good pasture and I do become malnourished until I either turn back and flee to him and return to his word and go to him in prayer or he comes and grabs me with the crook of his staff through discipline and carries me back on his shoulder to the flock in the good pasture. One of the key things to see about the shepherd in John chapter 10 and in Psalm 23 is that a shepherd leads. He doesn't drive. Cowboys drive the herd from behind, trying to motivate the cows to go somewhere that they don't want to go. Shepherds lead from the front. They go first. The sheep follow. That is why Jesus is able to encourage us when we enter into the valley of the shadow of death. Because he has already gone into the valley in full faith and obedience to his Father, and he has reached the other side, having been raised on the third day when the tomb was opened. Each one of us is going to enter that valley. Unless Christ returns first, each one of us is going to enter that valley. And for those of us who are following Jesus, he will come alongside of us, his word says, to encourage us, to comfort us, and to lead us as only he can. He who has already walked the path. And he'll be waiting for us on the other side. 
where he has already prepared a place for us. As Rich Mullins famously paraphrased Jesus as saying from John 14, that where I am, there you may also be. So that brings us to the third question about Jesus. Why did Jesus come? In verses 11 through 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Why did Jesus come to lay down his life for the sheep? You see, it goes back to the garden. God created the first man and woman, and they were good. He created them without sin. He loved them. He put them in this garden where they were to live forever in fellowship with him, in direct fellowship. Genesis 3 says that God walked walked among them in the garden, and he spoke to them. They heard him, and they spoke back to them, and he heard them. He gave them every tree in the garden to eat from except from two. He told them the day that when you eat of that tree, you will die. And they decided to break the relationship. Everything in the world was theirs except for those two trees, but they wanted more. They chose self over God. They rebelled against the one who loved them, who made them. They ate the fruit and they died in three ways. First, immediately, spiritually, unable to be in a relationship with him anymore. Secondly, they died physically. Decay and corruption entered into the world for the very first time. And they who were meant to live forever started on that course towards their physical death. And then third, after their physical death, they were to die eternally. Tormented and separated from God and all of his good gifts that he had provided for them during their lives. Except he promised to send a substitute. See, each one of us has been born, each one of us who has been born since the fall, who is all, which is all of us, has been born into a rebellion against God. As our senior pastor has said before, when a child is born, parents don't have to teach the child to say, mine, or to teach them to grab a toy and take it from another child. They, they learn that on their own because they're following their sinful nature, that nature that I have, that nature that all of us have. And most people think that they are good people. And God is going to accept them based if their good qualities outweigh their bad qualities or their good works outweigh their bad works, then God will take them. But our works don't work. Scripture makes it clear. They don't make us acceptable to God. God weighs people against his perfect righteousness and justice. In the beginning of the Bible, as early as Leviticus 22, and at the end of the Bible in 1 Peter 1, God says, be holy, for I am holy. And scripture is clear that none of us is righteous, no, not one. We have all sinned. 
And God's word says that he must punish sin. If he tolerated people's sin and he let some things slide without being punished, then he would not be perfectly righteous and just. And so the Bible says that the punishment for sin is death in Romans 6.23. And that's the bad news of the Bible. And if God stopped there, we would have no hope. But God did not stop there. God loves his creation. He loves people who he created in his own image to be in a relationship with. So he sent a substitute to take our punishment if we will accept his his substitute. And so the substitute came to lay down his life and take the punishment of God, his Father, and that substitute is Jesus Christ. Only God the Son could come into the world and lead the perfect, righteous life that I failed to lead. And Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross because the religious authorities eventually had their way. They had enough evidence, they arrested him, and they put him to death. And while he was on that cross being put to death, God took all the sin of his sheep, all the sin of of his people who had ever put their faith in him before he came and would put their faith in him after they came, after he came, he put their sin on Jesus and he punished that sin on Jesus. Jesus died, he laid in the tomb, the payment having been fully made. And then God opened the tomb and Jesus was raised from the dead and he walked out and he met with the women and then he met with his disciples and then he met with 500 at once and then other people before he ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of his father, back in glory, back exalted in his exalted state where he awaits to come back. The message of John 10 that we read this morning is the good news of the gospel, that the good shepherd came to lay down his life for the sheep, to take the punishment for their sin so that they could have eternal life and be reconciled in their broken relationship with the Father. We were created to spend eternal life with God and that is where what his followers will do. You know, all of this is a reminder of why death is such a grief and why Jesus is such good news. Sin and death are alien to his creation, and we hate the separation that death causes. Many of us on this Mother's Day are reminded of the grief of losing our mothers. Mothers like my wife, who lost her precious mother to colon cancer before our three children even entered school. Robbed of the phone calls and the emails of a mother calling to get advice. Some of us are mothers who are grieved by the loss of children to include children lost during miscarriage. Kathy and I lost two babies during miscarriage, and we long to someday be in heaven and to meet them and to find out what they're like. 
Others of us pray to be mothers and struggle with the effects of infertility as Kathy and I did for three years, asking why. We don't know why. But we do know that all of these things are the effects of mankind's fall into sin. And we grieve all these things as a community, a community that loves one another when we experience these things together. When Kathy and I have shared our griefs with people in the past in our churches when each of them happened, we learned that God had already placed people around us who had been down that road and were ready to minister to us and walk with us as we walk down that road. So we turn to our church because that's what the community of saints does. We mourn with those who mourn. We grieve with those who grieve. We mourn as a community, together as one. We also turn to our shepherd, who knew what it was like to lose loved ones during his life on earth, and who already has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, has walked down that path towards death, and we celebrate. We celebrate that Jesus conquered death, and he will restore creation and make all things new. In the new heavens and the new earth, when he will wipe away every tear, where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, for the former things will have passed away the beginning of this sermon, I said we look at three questions. Who is Jesus? What is he like? And why did he come? Who is Jesus? He's God. God the Son. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That is his claim, and that is our confession, the same confession that the church has made for 2,000 years. What is he like? He's a shepherd. He came to lead us, he came to protect us, and he came to provide for us. And why did he come? He came to lay down his life as a substitute for ours, if we will accept him. Are you one of his sheep? He invites you to be. In Romans 10, 9, God's word says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Are you already one of his sheep, but you know you have wandered far away from the shepherd and the good pasture, and know that right now you're in a desolate place? Turn back to him today, and he will come to get you. Speak to him. Now, as we pray, please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd. I pray that you would reveal that to us. I pray that you've revealed that to us today and that you would continue to reveal that to us as we consider your word in the days to come, during our busy weeks, as we go forward into the world. Make your word real to us. May it transform our hearts and minds. And if there are those who are hearing your voice for the first time, I pray that they would turn to you as their shepherd and accept you as God, the Son of God, who came to lay down your life for them. 
And if there are others who have wandered from you, Lord, speak to their hearts. Let them know you love them. And Lord, let them return to you. Let them turn to you like the prodigal son did, and you like the father running to them to bring them back to you and your house, your flock, your pasture. Feed us with your word, Lord. Be with us this week and be with us now as we sing our last hymn. We pray in your name. Amen.